0: You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. A bedrock principle of medical care is informed consent. So why do healthcare professionals continue to slip on the banana peel of failing to properly obtain informed consent in clinical practice? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is Attorney Joseph T. Monahan. Mr. Monahan is the co-founder of the law firm Monahan & Cohen in Chicago. He teaches at Loyola Law School and represents healthcare professionals, hospitals, and social service agencies. His many areas of expertise include informed consent and risk management. Joseph Monahan, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable.
1: Thank you, Susan. It's a pleasure to be here. Give us
0: a refresher course. What's the history of informed consent?
1: The history of informed consent goes back way in early jurisprudence. In the early 1700s, the notion of a doctor treating somebody without getting their written and informed consent was actually seen as a battery, an unlawful touching. And through the 1700s and the 1800s and the 1900s in the United States, the courts became more concerned with a physician not getting written informed consent from the, the patient. It's clear today as you and I talk, Susan, that the physician has an obligation to get written and informed consent before they should do any procedure on a person.
0: What are the elements of informed consent?
1: There are really four main elements of informed consent. First, the person, the patient, must be informed, meaning they must understand the nature, the effect, the risks of what the procedure is that the physician is trying to do. Second, The informed consent must be knowing that the person has to have the cognitive process and be able to understand that the information provided and engage in some type of rational decision about whether or not to accept the treatment. Third, the third concept of informed consent is that it should be voluntary. The consent must be voluntary. It must be a choice that's not affected by undue influence, by either the physician, him or herself, family members, clergy, or somebody else. And finally, the fourth element is that the person, the patient, must be able to communicate this decision intelligently. So those four elements are informed, knowing, voluntary, and the ability to communicate it.
0: And any special advice in terms of documenting those elements in the medical record?
1: I think it's clear that when we go into a hospital today, for example, for procedures that are involved with high risk, hospitals go out of their way today to show videotapes, to give written information about the procedure and have the person actually sign off on it. For physicians in their offices, that same standard should be applied in that you should at least, at a minimum, document that you had an informed consent discussion with the patient, that you believe that they understand what the proposed procedure are, and that they consented it. You can have implied consent, but as a lawyer, Susan, I have to tell you, I always would rather that it be expressed and in writing.
0: If the general rule is that everyone is competent unless a court rules otherwise, what are the exceptions?
1: Let me just clarify that everyone in most states over the age of 18 is going to be viewed as competent. And I think that's the first element that you look at in whether a person is able to give written and informed consent. Number one, do they have the legal capacity to give you the written and informed consent? For example, if you were proposing to do some type of outpatient surgery in your office on a 16 year old, would that 16 year old be able to give written informed consent? Well, they may have all of the four elements that we discussed earlier, but they lack the legal capacity to give the written informed consent. Therefore, their consent would not be lawful. However, if you have a 19 or a 20 or a 39-year-old person who is developmentally disabled, who doesn't know or doesn't understand, they would lack the clinical capacity to provide written and informed consent, even though they may have the legal capacity. So my strongest advice to physicians is that they determine that the person has not only the legal capacity, but also the clinical capacity to give written and informed consent.
0: And how is that determined and documented?
1: You as a physician have the obligation to get written and informed consent, and it's really a clinical decision that you have to make with every patient that you see. Does this person understand? Do they have the clinical capacity to understand what I'm saying? If they don't, you have to look a substitute decision maker.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is attorney Joseph Monahan, discussing informed consent and risk management. If a patient does lack mental capacity, who can step in and make decisions for them?
1: State law will differ, Susan, on who can serve as a so-called surrogate decision-maker. What happens, generally speaking, is that on an informal basis, we often look to spouses to make decisions. And in fact, in Illinois, for many medical decisions, if it is determined by at least two physicians that a person lacks the capacity to make decisions for themselves, and the person is not objecting, they can act under the Illinois Surrogate Act. In some states, they don't have a surrogate act, but they have a Power of Attorney Act. If the person has the capacity to sign a Power of Attorney for health care, the physician can look to the agent under the Power of Attorney to make decisions for the person. If the person does not have the capacity, the law does not permit a surrogate decision maker, or the person does not have an agent under a power of attorney, then the next step is usually to get a guardian appointed by the court.
0: If a person presents themselves and says, I'm the agent, I am the power of attorney for health care, and they don't have the actual document with them, what do you advise
1: it depends upon the circumstances. If this is a patient that you've worked with before and you know the family, then there's less risk involved. However, if the person is somebody new, there's a very risky procedure that the person, the patient who the procedure is going to be done on, is not exactly competent and doesn't even recognize the person, then I would be very, very hesitant to take it without the document. You are held to a reasonable standard, and it would be reasonable to ask the person to bring the signed document in. Depending on the risk of the surgery or the procedure that you're going to do, and if there's any del- uh, risk and delay, I would take all of those factors into consideration before I would do anything on the thought that the person has a power of attorney.
0: And what if they have a power of attorney for health care document from another state?
1: The good news of powers of attorney from other states is if they are executed or or signed properly in one state, most of them, if not all of them, the intent of the law is that they be recognized by other states. The law which established the Power of Attorney Act um, was in 1990. It was called the Patient Self-Determination Act of 1990, and the United States Congress saw fit to make certain that the powers of attorney were done in every state. So this is one area of medical care where you see pretty much the same standard throughout the country.
0: Are there any particular cases that come to mind that highlight informed consent pitfalls for medical professionals?
1: Again, on the line of whether it be for infants, uh, young people, teenagers, and old people, I can think of examples every time. You start with the notion that a person has to give informed consent, and you have to get the person who's legally able to give informed consent. Today, with so many of our blended families, we have grandmothers and grandfathers taking care of children, We have nannies coming in to the doctor's office. We have aunts and uncles and friends and others who are bringing children into the doctor's office. You must be able to get consent from people who have the legal ability to give you written and informed consent because when something goes wrong, they will look back and say, who gave you the authority, doctor, to take that action? The same thing with teenagers and as it relates to some of the more controversial areas like birth control who does have the right to give written and informed consent for teenagers as it relates to birth control what happens when you have parents who are divorced or separated who has the legal authority to provide the written and informed consent and so All along the way for minors, you want to be absolutely certain that you have the proper person signing off on the treatment that you are providing. Similarly, with older folks who may be suffering from dementia, from Alzheimer's, or other diseases, you must be able to make certain that their consent is informed. If not, then you should be looking for substitute decision makers.
0: What if a patient doesn't want to be informed? Just do the procedure, they say.
1: The problem with just doing the procedure without outlining the exact risks and benefits of the treatment is, again, everything is fine when there's no problem. Physicians only run into difficulties when something goes amiss. And then It's a retroactive active look at what happened, and the person would say, well, doctor, you didn't tell me that. It is not a defense for the doctor to say, well, you didn't want to know. The defense for the doctor is I provided this information, it was clear, it was in writing, and here's your signature. The failure to get written and informed consent is going to be a difficulty for you, doctor, if you don't get it.
0: I want to thank our guest, Joseph Monahan. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.